I heard and saw a lot of fun zip lining and pontoon riding. Hope y'all had a good little break time there. This is always the most challenging session for a speaker. Mm-hmm. Because you didn't sleep well, whether by choice or not. And it's the afternoon, and you've had lunch, and so you're tired, and then some of your minds are already going back home. What's that kitchen going to look like when you get there? (laughs) What did he let them eat while you were gone? I almost made it through the weekend without a big adventure. I went to lunch and fellowshiped and talked to some people out on the field, and then I went back to my room and thought, I'm going to be a compliant camper and load my car before the last session. So I grabbed a couple of things, and I think when I went to open the doorknob with my hands full, I must have twisted the lock. Yeah. So I put that stuff in the car, and then I went back to go back in the cabin, which is where my Bible was and my notes, and I was locked out. So I went, I trudged over to the office. I'm over in loops, loop, loops, whatever it is. So I went over to the office, and Julie gave me a key, and she said, now, this key doesn't always work really well. (laughs) You know, you got to twist it, hold your mouth right, push, pull, whatever. So I go back to loop. Now, this is not across the street, right? So I go back. You know how humid it is, right? I'm starting to sweat. I've already done, you know, touched up my hair and brushed my teeth for this session. And the stupid key wouldn't work. And I don't have my phone to call Julie because my phone is in the cabin, so I'm about to walk all the way back over to see Julie. And Tim Capon came along, and I said, Tim, could you help me? I thought maybe, you know, I just needed a logical man to unlock the door. He couldn't do it either, which is always encouraging. (laughs) So then he called uh, Julie, and about this time, I think it was 12 after. Yeah, it was almost time for this to start. So Dave comes running, running down the path and uses his key and lets me in. So that was just my little fun adventure for this last session. I want to thank you for being an amazing audience. Um, I I think clearly, more more clearly, I shouldn't claim clearly. I think more clearly um, and I think communicate more effectively when the audience is responsive. And so I really appreciate that from you. You're a great audience to speak to. I think our first year here, I was invited to speak in Minnesota at the MBA, which I think is a different Baptist organization, and it was at Fourth Baptist, and it's a large auditorium, and I don't know, there were a lot of people there, and um, I was supposed to speak Friday afternoon, Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, and I did the Friday afternoon session, and then I went back to the hotel, and I called my husband, and I said, that was the worst speaking I have ever done. I could not connect with those ladies. I just... I quit, you know? And he's like, honey, it's the power of the word, right? (laughs) So I pray about that all afternoon. And I I go back Friday night, and I give it another shot. Didn't feel any better about it. Headed back over there Saturday morning for torture segment number three. And a, a, a very gracious lady came up to me in the, out of the audience before it started, and she said, I just want you to know that we are really benefiting from this. She said, we may not look like it. <laughs> and I was right. You're stinking right. You don't look like it. But anyway, you're a great audience. I don't struggle with that with you. 
If you're from Minnesota, I apologize. <laughs> They're just a little more stoic than I'm used to from my down south parts. We have contrasted the world's understanding of the strong woman with God's strong woman. Um, we've looked at God's design for woman in order to help us discern which ideology is shaping our thinking, our attitudes, and our behavior. We've looked next at a portrait of a strong woman found in Proverbs 31. And our purpose in that was not to give you a list of things to do, but rather to show us, and I hope this came through strongly at the end. I felt I was rushed a little bit in my thinking. But the point of that was to show us that being the Hail woman the strong woman, is all about fearing the Lord, knowing Him, seeking Him, pursuing Him, submitting my will to His, and then being guided by His wisdom. If you desire to be a strong woman, seek the Lord and seek His truth and yield to His truth. The world's approach has not worked. Women left home to try to achieve and obtain happiness and fulfillment. And statistically, in the 60s and 70s, the percentage of women on depression medication skyrocketed from what it had been while during the 50s, there was, there was actually a song. Um, was that the Beatles? Who was that? There was a song about mom's little blue pill or whatever color it was. And that whole song was written about mom's depression medication because so many women were on depression medication in the 50s. And so when they tried a different approach to find happiness and fulfillment, fulfillment that's actually skyrocketed. Why? Because we cannot find fulfillment and happiness in any role, home or out, career or family. And I, I love the song that we've sung multiple times about who the sun sets free. What's the line, Barb? Who the, who the sun sets free is free indeed. That is the truth. And we are creatures who seek happiness and fulfillment. And it's not going to be found in anything that this world offers. And that's why seeking to know God and seeking to understand His plan and His design and to order my life within that is the greatest fulfillment this life offers. Now in this session, I would like to turn our focus to the source of our strength. We've had a thread of that running throughout our various sessions. We talked about Ephesians 6, 10 to 13 last night, about be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And we were emphasizing being girded about with His truth. 
And then in this morning's session, when we talked about the fear of the Lord being what causes us to be that high-ill woman. So both of those are pointing us to that source. But I would like to, to end today, end this weekend, with a complete focus on the Lord is my strength. That is a message that is found all throughout Scripture. Um, in Exodus 15, 2, after the crossing of the Red Sea, Moses leads the people in this song of worship and praise that begins, the Lord is my strength and my song. Interesting um, little nugget about that is at the end or towards the end of that chapter, that psalm, that song, is where Miriam goes out and leads the women with timbrel and dance in praising the Lord for being their strength. And Miriam is, is a perfect example for us of a woman who is gifted, called to leadership. She's called a prophetess in Scripture. We see as a child, we see her creativity and her ingenuity when she's watching out for baby Moses in the basket. And I don't think her mom could say, now when this happens, here's what you say. I think you see some strength there of character. And then you see her leading along with Moses and Aaron and being a prophetess. And, and she's leading in this song with a focus on the Lord is my strength. But then what happens to her chapters later? We find her revolting and resisting the male leadership that God had put over her. And she starts looking at him and she starts thinking, what he can do, I can do better. And God chastened her very, very sternly. She was criticizing not only who Moses had married, but in that passage, she also criticizes his leadership. Has God only spoken through Moses? Has not God also spoken for me? And that's where I think we can see this, this high ill woman abusing her strength using it out of line, and God's chastening hand on her. Back to the Lord being our strength and that thread of script through Scripture. First Chronicles 16.11, Seek the Lord in His strength. Psalm 18.1, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. Psalm 18.2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength. We could go on and on. There are many passages that talk about this. But the time that I and the time that you are most clearly reminded of our desperate need of God as our strength is when things are hard. In the hardship of life, when I am, am stripped of my perceived ability to handle life, when something difficult or heartbreaking comes along, and I start crying out to God in desperation for help because I'm, I'm so aware that I have no strength on my own and I'm desperate for him. We see this in uh, 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul talks about um, 
lest he should be exalted above measure because of the revelation God had given to him. There was a thorn in the flesh given to him. And he's pleading with God to take it away. And God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you to keep the thorn. Why did God not take it away? Because his strength was made perfect in Paul's weakness. It was good for him to be in that desperate place. And I don't know what your heartache is, what it has been, what it is, what it will be in the future. But we live in a sin-cursed world, and we're a sin-cursed people, and life holds heartache. And it is in those times that we are most readily driven to God in renewed recognition that he is our strength. One of the most well-known cruise ship catastrophes happened on April the 15th of 1912 when the Titanic was sailing from Southampton, England to New York. The ship hit an iceberg and sunk, and more than 1,500 of its 2,200 passengers died. This led to a lot of inquiries, a lot of investigations, a lot of people saying, how in the world did this happen? How did the signaling system that was fairly new not work How did the other 200 ships in that region remain unaware and not come to the rescue? Movies have been made, books have been written. And one of the major points of the investigation that really continued throughout the whole last century was regarding a report of a ship that was stopped nearby that saw the distress rockets when they were set off and did not respond. A woman who was a little girl has been interviewed and recorded telling the story that she was with her mother on the Titanic and her mother saw the light of that ship in the distance and assured this little girl that is a ship that is coming to rescue us. But as time passed, and as the limited number of lifeboats were used, they stood and waited and began to lose hope that they were going to be rescued. Imagine that you are that mother or that little girl and there's, there are cries going out for help. The distress rockets, whatever the telegraph type of system they were using. And, and you're crying out and you're crying out and you're, you're starting to wonder, why is no one answering? Why are they not coming to rescue us? Do you ever feel like that in your spiritual life? Has there ever been a heartache so great 
that you so desperately cried out to God about. Believing that he was hearing you, seeing the promises in his word that he does hear, but then not seeing any response from God. You have all probably experienced that to some degree, or if you're fairly young, you probably will. And what do we do in those situations? Those times can really shake our faith. These are times of waiting. God is really big on waiting. Have you ever done a study of how many times the Bible talks about us waiting on the Lord? There was a man in Scripture who cried out to God in a similar desperate situation, and then God didn't seem to be doing anything. And then he started complaining to God about it. And we can learn from this man about how, how we can respond to a God who we know is our strength, and yet who seems to be sitting idly by and not intervening when we're asking him to. I'm talking about the prophet Habakkuk. So if you could turn with me to Habakkuk. Can you find Habakkuk? Toward the end of the Old Testament, not too many books before Matthew. There's a little handful of ladies here from Soteria. I know you have just been through a series, so you can come up here and join me in teaching if you would like to. Habakkuk is one of the 12 minor prophets. He's not minor in regards to the importance of his message. He's minor, or the book is minor in regards to the length of it. It's only three chapters. So in comparison to Jeremiah or Isaiah or Daniel, it's minor, a minor prophet, whereas they are major prophets. The setting of this book is... Habakkuk is a prophet of whom we know very little. And he is burdened over the sin of God's people. There is great transgression and sin within the children of Israel or Judah. He's burdened about that. And he knows from God's covenant, the old covenant between God and his people, that God had promised that if they walked in obedience, there would be blessing. And if they forsook him and followed idols and did not obey him, there would be punishment, judgment, and chastening. So he's scratching his head and he's saying, okay, God, I think my reputation's at stake here. I'm a prophet and I've been telling them that this is what's going to happen and I don't see you doing anything. The date of this book is um, around the time of the Assyrian Empire, prior to the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem that took place in 586. So it's, it's believed to cover about 70 years prior to that. It just gives you an idea of, of what's happening here. Look with me, though, at chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry, violence, and you will not save. 
Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry violence and you will not save? Why do you make me look at iniquity while you idly sit by? Good question that he's wrestling with. What I am sharing with you today is coming out of my own heart and life right now. I was studying Psalm 130 that talks about out of the depths I cry to you. And I was waiting on God. And somehow in that study, I ended up flipping over to Habakkuk. And I've been there since January. So this is more of me sharing out of my devotions than a structured formal message. It's still in the making in my own heart and mind. But I related to this. Because I feel like I have been crying out to God on behalf of loved ones who have turned from the faith. And I'm not seeing what God is doing. And that can happen in our lives, and that can be very discouraging to us. It can cause a crisis of our faith. God, I, I read your word. I read your promises but I'm not really seeing what you're doing. Sorry. In Psalm 44, the psalmist starts out saying, Oh God, we have heard of your wondrous works in the past. And then he goes on to describe what God did for the children of Israel in the Exodus. And then he says, um, You're our God too. And then he goes on to say later in Psalm 44, Awake! I don't think he means that disrespectfully, but I think it's a communication of the frustration that God seems to be sleeping on the job. You ever feel that way? Again, I don't know your heartache, but I know mine, and I know that I'm not alone in it. And, and this, these feelings of pleading with God month after month, year after year, I think are what he was feeling. And when he doesn't see what God is doing, when God seems to be idle, I think his faith is being stretched. But notice, what is he doing here in verse 2? He is continuing to cry out to God. When you're in this situation, you're, you make a decision. I give up. It's not real. He doesn't love me the way he loves them. He evidently doesn't care. I'm going to have to figure this out on my own. Or 
we continue to cry out to God. And that's what he is doing here. So your first point on your handout is because God is your source of strength, you can keep crying out to him when you feel he is not answering. You keep crying out to him when you feel he is not answering. Hold your finger there, but if you would, turn with me over to 1 Peter chapter 1. I love this passage. And in 1 Peter 1, uh, Peter is addressing the suffering, scattered believers. And in verse 3 of chapter 1, he starts reminding them of their inheritance in Jesus Christ. They have understood the gospel. They have placed their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And he's reminding them of what that means. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. So that little section is just, this is who you are. This is what you have to look forward to. And then he kind of changes gears, and he says, in this... And this truth that I've just reminded you of about your eternal destination. In this, you greatly rejoice, although now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness or sincerity of your faith being much more precious than that of gold that perishes, maybe to the praise, honor, and glory of Jesus Christ at the revelation of God. What's he saying? Right now, you're in a ditch. You're in a pit, as the psalmist calls it. And it's painful, but it's temporary and it's necessary And the reason for it is that God is purifying your faith. When life is good, faith is easy. When life is good, it's easy to say, yeah, I love Jesus, and Jesus is awesome. Jesus is good. But then suddenly you're in the depths of heartache, and that intellectual truth That theological truth is being tested. Do I really believe that? Because suddenly I can't see the goodness of God in my life. Which by definition is what faith is. Hebrews 11.1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So it is only when I can't see the goodness of God that my faith is being tested and purified. And that's what was taking place in their lives. And that was the encouragement that was being given to them. And I think that when you and I are not seeing God's goodness, we can know that our being asked of God to wait 
is not that you know we're in line and God hasn't had time to get to us yet. It is God saying, you know what? Let's just kind of see what you're made of. Let's see if you're going to keep believing in me when you can't see my visible goodness when life is hard. And that's where Habakkuk is. Um, He can't see the power of God and the goodness of God and God fulfilling his promises in that time of his life. Look with me back in Habakkuk at verses 5 and 6. Habakkuk has finished his first complaint in verses 1 through 4. And now in verse 5, God starts speaking and God is responding. God says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. Just think about that. What's God saying? He's using these four words to say, look and see, behold and wonder. Because while you thought I was sleeping on the job, I was hard at work doing something that you would not even believe if you did know about it. Wow. That's an encouraging truth for us. God goes on to describe what this work is that he is doing. He says in verse 6, For I am raising up the Chaldeans, which was the Babylonians. And then he gives a description of them. So he's saying to Habakkuk, I know you, you couldn't see, you still can't see what I'm doing. But I'm at work behind the scenes. You don't always have to know about it. Can you relate to that? You ever prayed for something again? And you think, God, I think you're being idle. I think you're on the jo- asleep, asleep on the job and I'm, I'm crying out with the psalmist, please wake up. But in those times, we can be assured that he is at work when you can't see what he is doing. You can be assured of that. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. My loved ones for whom I am burdened, I am confident that God has begun a good work in them. I honestly don't know if they're truly saved and just being deceived or if they only had an intellectual ascent and and conforming to the path of least resistance growing up. I don't know. But I believe that just by their exposure to the gospel that God has given them, he began a good work. And I claim that as I can be confident that he's not stopping I can't see it. I want to see it. And I can't always see what he's doing, but I can have this confidence. And that's what God is teaching Habakkuk here. If you continue in that same paragraph, God begins to describe what these Chaldeans or Neo-Babylonians were like. And it's not pretty. 
In verse 6, he says that they are bitter and hasty. He says that they march seizing. In verse 7, he says they're dreaded and fearsome. In verse 8, he compares their cavalry to three predators, a leopard, a wolf, and an eagle, all whose speed and power brought violent death to their prey. So so God is answering Habakkuk and telling him something Habakkuk didn't know. I'm at work, and you would just be wowed if you could see it for yourself. And here's what's going to happen. And he gives Habakkuk a glimpse of what it is that he's doing. But then look at verse 12, and let's look at Habakkuk's response to this. Um... Lord, I believe in your justice. You're from everlasting. You're holy. I believe in your covenant promise that at least a a, a remnant of Israel will be preserved. See where he says in the end of verse 12, we shall not die. But then, oh, and then in verse 12, he also says that you're my rock. He's looking at the character and the strength of God. But then he goes on to say, um... I don't get it. This isn't making sense. Look at verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent while the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? What's he saying? Okay, God, I've been preaching and proclaiming that judgment was coming, and I want you to do that. Because that's what your covenant says. But this isn't what I had in mind. This does not make sense to me that you are taking the Chaldeans or the Babylonians who are way more wicked than the Jews I'm burdened about and allowing them to destroy them. The more wicked are just, God, I don't get it. In essence, he's saying, "Um, I'm really glad that you're not being idle, but this isn't what I had in mind. Has that ever happened to you? You are praying for something and seeking God for something and you've maybe even given God a few suggestions. You ever done that? Um, God, this loved one has his own business and I think that if you let that fail, he would need you. Or... um, God, just do something amazing to reveal yourself to him and show him yourself. And the business explodes. And I'm like, I mean in a good way. I don't mean it blows up. I mean it does really well. (laughs) And I'm scratching my head saying, God, that wasn't the the thing we talked about. (laughs) I I don't understand your plan because your word says that the way of the sinner is hard. So that loved one's life isn't looking hard. That loved one is portraying that they are happier than they've ever been. So I'm having trouble reconciling what you're doing here. Maybe you have prayed for a child for months or years and you finally get pregnant and you're so excited about the goodness of God and then God takes that little one. 
And that can throw you into confusion. God, I don't get it. I don't get it. I thought we had a deal here. I thought you were answering my prayer. Notice that, though, even in his confusion, even when what God Almighty is planning does not make sense to his human mind, he is still focusing on the truths he knows about God. Look back again at verse 12. You are from everlasting. You are my rock. So he continues to focus on truths that he knows. Now look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. This ends this, this second complaint of Habakkuk. He's complained. God's answered. He's complained again. And then he wraps up his second response to God in chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand. That sounded really southern. I'm going to try that again. I will take my stand at the watch post (laughs) and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. What is he doing here? He refers to himself as a watchman. And in ancient Bible times, the watchmen were were men, soldiers, who were placed on top of the city walls to be on watch for the enemy approaching and to warn the citizens of danger that was coming. So a prophet, in essence, was a watchman. He was was to see the Lord's purposes, the Lord's judgment coming, and to warn the people. In in this book, though, rather than the prophet conveying God's message to man, he is representing man before God. And he says, I'm going to do my watchman job, but I'm not watching for the enemy, the people. I'm watching to see what God says. So there is this continuing anticipation and continuing to watch even when he doesn't understand And even when in his human reasoning, he can't agree with what God is doing. Did that one go? So remember who he is and keep watching when you can't understand his plan. Remember at the beginning, he's confused, but he's he's focusing on who God is. God, you are eternal. You are everlasting. You are my rock. And then he's going to plant himself as a watchman and keep watching. The story's not over. So he's got this anticipation of what God is going to do. That brings us to chapter 2, verse 2. So Habakkuk has complained, God has answered. Habakkuk has complained again, and now God is answering again. So in chapter 2, verse 2, the Lord answered and said, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his, referring to the wicked from chapter 1, soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. So God is answering Habakkuk's second complaint. And the first thing he says to him is to write it down on tablets. Writing something down on a tablet versus like the papyrus 
was done to make sure that it endured longer. So that is representative of the delay in the fulfillment of what God said was going to happen. And then he says, it's going to happen at its appointed time. And then he says, if it seems slow, wait for it. It's going to happen. It will surely come. It will not delay. Habakkuk is being told here by God to be patient. Something we need, isn't it? When we are desperate for God to intervene and he is just taking his own sweet time. And he wants us to learn to wait on him. To rest in him, which demands faith. It demands trust in who he is. And then you look at this next verse. Behold, his soul, the wicked, is puffed up. But it says, the righteous shall live by his faith. This is the origin of the New Testament passages that say that the just shall live by faith. It's where this comes from. And and God is showing him a contrast between the, the proud, the Chaldean, who is lifting himself up, and the just, who are living by faith and trusting God when they cannot see and when what they can see doesn't make sense. What does it teach us? This teaches us to keep waiting. He tells him to wait for it. To keep believing, the just shall live by faith. And to keep worshiping. If you look down at verse 14, you see the worship part. God is giving in this section woes to the Chaldean. In other words, he's saying to Habakkuk, okay, you need to write, write this down. You need to write down the details of what's going to happen because it needs to last because it might not happen right away. And then you need to be patient and you need to wait and live by faith. And here's what's going to happen to the Chaldeans. And you see multiple woes here. You see a woe in verse 6 and a woe in verse 9 and a woe in verse 12 and a woe in verse 15. And God is foretelling what is going to happen to the very wicked after they have brought judgment on God's behalf to the wicked. All right, but look at tucked in the middle of that in verse 14. What is God's purpose in what he's going to do? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in God's plan of delaying and using the Babylonians to judge Judah, and God's plan then of judging the Babylonians with all of these woes, His ultimate purpose is that he is glorified and he is worshipped. This is is tough for us. Um, Something that God has been doing in my heart in the past year, um, I pour out my heart to God for my loved ones. And I'm trying to wait and I'm trying to learn what what does it mean to wait on God and what does it mean to rest in him. But I have found that my focus can be consumed with my burden for those individuals. I was was in my little study and prayer nook 
one night when I was just emotionally spiraling in a bad way. And I was praying and crying, and I came out, and Dean was sitting on the couch, and I'm crying, and I said, can my burden for the godliness of our children be idolatry? And the reason that I was wondering that was because it was all-consuming. My burden for my child, who went to China as a missionary, wholehearted, apparently, seemingly, for God, and began, while a missionary, to question his faith, and has now embraced intellectualism and humanism. My burden for a child who has struggled with their sexual orientation and has chosen that lifestyle in the past few years. That can be so consuming and so heartbreaking that I find that my, my view is very narrow. And I realize that if I'm consumed by that and that's all I can pray for, then I am not interceding for others. And I'm not really focusing on the glory of God. And one of the things that God has done in my heart and in my life is to help me to realize that the way I should be praying ultimately is not just that this one gets right with God and that God, as Second Timothy talks about, if God should grant them repentance and bring them to the acknowledging of the truth and free them from the snare of the devil by which they've been deceived. That's my anchor. But beyond what I desire for that loved one is God wants to be glorified. And that process may seem ugly to me, that journey. And so God is describing all these woes, these things are going to happen to Babylon after it happens to Judah. And what's his ultimate purpose? That he be glorified and he be worshipped. And so God has worked in my heart to change the way I pray. I continue to pray for these loved ones. I continue to pray that God in his mercy will continue to pursue them. But beyond that, I'm praying, God, be glorified in his life. Be glorified in her life. But God, be glorified in me. What are you trying to do in me and through me in this to bring you glory? How, how do I respond in a way that glorifies you? Because God, that's ultimately the purpose of all of this. That's why you have allowed this. That's why you have allowed me to be the parent. Because you want me to glorify you. And you know, that has tweaked my perspective to where I don't feel consumed with my burden anymore. I'm able to say, God, do what you want to do. Do it in me. Do it in them. I have my bad days. I have my emotional days where I go like this. Um, But keep waiting, believing, and worshiping when God's intervention seems slow. This brings us to chapter 3 the last chapter of the book. And God has finished answering Habakkuk. 
I would add to that verse 14 about worship, I would add verse 20. I overlooked that one. But the last verse in chapter 2 also is one about worship. The Lord is in his holy temple at all the earth. Keep silence before him. God wanted the whole earth that time and now to learn to quiet ourselves before him. And he was using judgment to do that. We come to chapter 3 and we find Habakkuk praying or praising God. He's complained twice. God has answered twice. And now he is praying to God. And he reacts to or responds to everything that God has said by offering a prayer. May I suggest that I don't think that Habakkuk's questions had all been answered. I don't think that he reached a point here of understanding why God was choosing to use the very wicked to punish the wicked. But God was doing something in his heart and in his mind that in spite of that, in spite of still not understanding, God has directed his focus to God's bigger purpose of being glorified and worshipped. And Habakkuk responds by doing that. He responds by seeking to glorify and worship God. So he starts out in verses 1 and 2. Oh Lord, I have heard the report of you. It starts out almost exactly like Psalm 44. And your work, oh Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. Revive what? Revive the work that I've heard about from the past. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God, I I get that Judah needs judgment. I get that you're promising that you will also then judge the Babylonians. But God, if you have to do it this way, could could you show us some of that glorious work from the past too? Not just the, the cruel judgment. And, and could you, when you have to do that, could you show some mercy? So he's still kind of pleading with God. Still not quite at a point of accepting everything that God is going to do. But he asked God to work. He asked for God's mercy. And then look with me at verses 3 through 8. He is looking back at a time when God's presence and power was more evident than it is right then. And he's, this is done often in Scripture where the author looks back and remembers God's faithfulness and God's powerful work in the past. And he's recounting when God defended his people and displayed his power against the enemies. So you see here that he used nature. That's this first section. He's using nature, the river and the sea, were his arsenal against the enemies of God and his people. And then you get to verse 9, and the imagery changes. It changes to God being a warrior. God, uh, He rode his chariot and his horses in verse 8. He readies his bow and his arrow in verse 9. And then in verses 9 through 11, it's describing the effects of God's wrath on nature. 
It is split. The mountains rise like someone in terror. The celestial bodies are also affected where they stand still like they did back in Joshua's day. And then starting in verse 12, he starts talking about the effect of God's wrath on the foreign nations. And as he writes these descriptions of what God has done, he is praising God and he is worshiping God for his great power and presence in the past. It reminds me of Job at the end of the book, after all of Job's questions and all of Job's debates with his friends, when he thinks that God is not present, he thinks that God has been idle and God visibly shows up, not visibly, audibly shows up and starts talking to him. And what does God do in chapters 38 to 41? He says, um, where were you when I was making all this? Can you, Job, explain how this works? Can you explain how I can control that sea monster? Can you control, can you explain how I can hold the ocean in its place? And for three chapters, God goes on and on about his power and control over nature. And I think Job, who had been a little bit self-righteous and not understanding what God had done, gains a new perspective. God never answers his question, but he, he realizes, God, I've heard of you in the past, but now my eye actually sees you. I'm, I'm gaining a grasp of who you are. And I think that's what Habakkuk is doing. He is rehearsing back to God, God's power and presence over the past and all that God has done, how God has used the forces of nature, how God has fought against Israel's enemies. And what is Habakkuk's response to this? Look in verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. So he's describing his fear and his awe of God in physiological terms. His body trembling, that can be his heart pounding, or it can be a very severe stomach ache. That's what that means. He talks about his lips quivering. He's trembling. Rottenness enters his bones. That's the idea of decay or weakness. He's kind of going limp because of what God what God has done, and his legs tremble beneath him. He's, he's faltering, he's stumbling as if he's going to fall because he's so overwhelmed as he is recounting the power and presence of God. His response doesn't just stop at fear, but he chooses to put his faith in God, continuing to trust in him. He's relying on the character of God. There's, there's a principle here for us. Remember his past work and stand in awe when he seems inactive. Remember his past work and stand in awe when God seems inactive. If you're like me, when I am in, a, in the pit and I'm focused on what I'm not seeing right now, 
And Satan is wanting to cause me to doubt and to question the reality of God, his goodness, his love, his personal interest in my burdens, whatever it might be. Um, It is in those times that I have learned to truth myself with who God is. I will read psalms that talk about who God is. I will sing songs that talk about who God is. What am I doing? I am truthing myself. I am renewing my mind because I know that I need to cast down vain imaginations and every thought that exalts itself against the glory of God, 2 Corinthians 10.5. And I need to cling to the truths that I know about Him. And when I do that, When I turn my focus from woe is me and woe is my situation to this is who God is, this is what God has done in the past. Yes, in Scripture, in Israel, all through history, but even what he's done for me. There are tangible goodnesses and faithfulness that I have experienced that I can only attribute to God. And so when I am struggling, what do I need to do? I need to look back. And I need to remember, and I need to praise God, and I need to stand in awe and not give in to this this slump, this pit that I kind of want to hang out in for a little bit. And that's what is happening here for Habakkuk. He He is trembling, but then look how he ends verse 16. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. God, I dread this day. He doesn't even know that he will live through it. It's likely that he didn't. So he has no promise of his own safety, his own temporal future. But he is at this point accepting, God, you are sovereign. You have a plan. I can't understand it. But because of all of your faithfulness and goodness in the past, I'm going to quiet my heart before you. I am going to be still and quiet and not try to be God. I'm not going to try to make suggestions of what you should be doing. I'm going to be quiet before you. And then we come to this beautiful rejoicing of Habakkuk. This is probably the part of Habakkuk that you know. Look in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines... The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. He chooses to continue to rejoice in God. Israel, or Judah, is an agrarian economy. Their livelihood is their crops, and their herds. So what's he saying here? He's saying, God, although our very sustenance may fail, although we may not have food on our tables, I am going to keep rejoicing in you. What's he rejoicing in? I believe he's rejoicing in the looking back. And I also think he's rejoicing in the looking forward. He still has his relationship with God. 
He still had God's covenant. And you and I need to look back at God's faithfulness and we need to look ahead at what's to come. That goes back to that 1 Peter 1 passage I shared a few minutes ago. It also reminds me of Hebrews 12 where the Hebrews are being exhorted to endure and it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. And, and we need to endure when we are in a place like this, a place of heartache where we can't see God, God's hand, he seems idle, or where we see what he's doing and we don't get it. Look back, remember, look forward, and rejoice in him. Basically, Habakkuk here is saying, if I am stripped of everything else, I still have you, God. And that is enough. How was it possible for him to say all of this? Look at verse 19. God the Lord Say it with me, is my strength. He's going through something very hard. He can't make sense out of it. He wishes it could be different. He's still going to plead with God for mercy on his people. But he's able to keep trusting. He's able to keep clinging because God is his strength. God is enabling him. God is sustaining him. And he goes on to talk about the effect of that strength in verse 19. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. If you've been to Israel, there are a lot of rocks. And there are a lot of like kind of cliffy places. But there's not nice soft grass, but it's like crags and, and cliffs and narrow places that are very rocky. And he's, he's thinking of a deer who has to traverse that, whose footing is sure and stable, and he's not slipping. And he's saying, that's a picture of me, because God is my strength. I can climb those difficult places and not slip, and not fall. So God is his strength. You know, you, like I, may have done this in the past, but maybe, maybe take verses 17 to 19 and write it out for yourself with your own stuff. Although things with my mother-in-law right now are difficult, She'll be 99 in November. We just, I've, she's been living with us for 12 years. I've been her caregiver. We just had to put her in respite care to get additional help for her, and I'm heartbroken over that. Although Grandma Taylor doesn't live with me anymore, although I'm a 1,000 miles away from my family, and although I feel like I need to be there investing in them, although I feel like I'm getting old and things are starting to fall apart, although, 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 yet I will rejoice in you because God is my strength and like a deer, he's going to give me sure footing. So I think you have one more blank. 
Keep rejoicing in God your strength, even when your circumstances don't change. I like to pick a theme for the year that I kind of focus on, something where I feel like God is trying to grow me and change me. And my theme for last year was fight to rest. It was kind of my motto. Sounds like a paradox, oxymoron, whatever grammatical term is the right one for that. But it's the idea that I know God calls me to rest, but that's not coming naturally. And and day after day, when I am having heartache, it's a fight to rest in God. I have to choose to focus on who He is, to relinquish my cares to Him, to cast them upon Him and rest in who He is. Um, This year, my theme is waiting on God. Kind of go hand in hand. What does it mean to wait on God? And I believe that Habakkuk presents for us that message. I will wait. I will sit quietly and I will wait. I will get up in my watchtower spot and I will watch with anticipation for what God is going to do. You know, the sad thing, the hard thing sometimes for us, the angst, is that sometimes we can't guarantee the outcome. If, if I'm praying for something that I know God promises, I know it's going to happen. Right? But when it comes to people and their spiritual condition, I cannot presume the outcome because God gives free will. And so that's when my faith is, is really tested. Like, what does waiting on you look like when I, I, can't, I don't have a promise to, to know how this is going to end? God, I don't have a guarantee that this is going to come full circle, like I keep suggesting that it do. And that's, that's challenging, but I think that's kind of what this story is because there wasn't a happy ending promise for Habakkuk, was there? God did exactly what he said he was going to do. God destroyed Jerusalem. God then destroyed the Babylonians. So how do I navigate that when I don't have the happy ending of God's promise? Again, I look back at his goodness. I look back at his character. I look ahead at what's to come, and I choose to rest in, God, this is bigger than me. And I am just going to have to cling to you and who you are and to your goodness and your mercy, and I'm going to have to leave the outcome up to you. First Peter 3, where we hung out a little bit the other day, the holy women of old, they're given as an example of this strong woman who who stays in her lane, who stays in rank. And what's the key that's given there in 1 Peter 3, 4, and 5? The holy women of old who trusted in God. We back up to verse to chapter 2 where Jesus is our model, our example of suffering, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. He, he didn't sin with his mouth. He didn't threaten. But what did he do instead? But committed to him who judges righteously. And those are our models. I have to choose to cling to God because of who he is, even though, even though. Can I ask you just to bow your head? 
We're wrapping it up. You're about to head home. Can I encourage you if you traveled, if you carpooled, to try to have some conversations? Um, what, is, what is God doing in your heart and your mind? What, what questions or concerns did, did these messages stir for you? Where are you in this journey? So try to talk about it. Um, but even right now, how would God have you respond to the truths that you've heard through this weekend? Is there one little step of obedience that God would have you to take? One little point of surrender of God, you have laid on my heart this. You've laid on my heart this aspect of the Hail woman where I need to fear you, um, where I need an attitude change in a certain area, whatever it might be. Or maybe God has laid on your heart, you know what? You are in a very difficult circumstance like Habakkuk, and you don't see what God is doing. Will you say, God, I'm, I'm going to be open-handed here. I am going to choose to keep clinging to you. When my flesh is screaming, give up. Maybe you're here today and some of what you've been hearing is a little bit foreign to you. And you would say, I'm not sure that I even get all of this. Can I encourage you to talk maybe to the person that you came with? The starting point for all of this, for this freedom that we have sung about and talked about, is the freedom that comes through Jesus Christ. He's the creator. He wrote the owner's manual to tell you how, how life should work. And maybe you need to take that first step of just surrendering your life to him, placing your trust in him. I'm going to give you just a moment to quietly respond to whatever God is doing in your heart, right there in your seat. God, we wrestle with our flesh. We wrestle with our emotions. We wrestle with your truth. Lord, we want to, by your grace, bow before you, embrace your design, submit to your plan, and rest in who you are. Thank you for this sweet time together. May you be honored and glorified in all that we do as we leave here. In your name, amen.